What you are about to hear is a labor of love, our love is for the music, and the music is for the people. We at Rockstrikes10 and cnjradio.com have always recommended that any music we promote on our shows be legally purchased, downloaded, or streamed. We feel this way not only for our network of shows, but for all music-based shows. By supporting the artist in this way, more music can be created and the industry as a whole can prosper. The music is owned by their respective labels or hopefully by the artists themselves. This broadcast is owned by cnjradio.com. Our only mission is to promote the music we love and promote the legal purchase of it. Enjoy the show and turn it up. Welcome to Rock Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. Okay, you know, I had such a fun time doing the concert chronology episodes, those first two that I did, going in chronological order, of course, of all the concerts I have attended throughout my entire lifetime. And hopefully we're not done here, whether it's my health or the world's health, uh, hopefully not done with concerts. So it's definitely a time to reflect since nothing's going on. And, you know, I just like playing the artists that represent these shows here. So sit back, relax, or do whatever it is you're doing. If you're walking, you know, jogging, riding the bike, whatever, uh, enjoy these stories and enjoy the songs attached to them. I hope I can entertain you for the next little bit. So uh, away we go. As we left off at the uh, Motley Crue radio show, the one with John Karabi back in 1994, we head up a couple of months into August 5th, 1994. It is yet another show at the Starplex in Dallas. Man, that shed got a lot of mileage when it came to just me. Not just shows, but me. I went there a lot. And as you'd want to do in Texas, do an outdoor show. Uh, in 100-plus degree weather, and it was definitely a hot August night, if I can use a cliche and album title here to talk about this show. Once again, August 5th, 1994 in Texas, yeah, it's something else, and it was for Metallica, so, you know, it was worth it. You know, 1994 Metallica still had a ton of juice. They were literally still on the Black Album tour, even though they had released the live ship box and things like that. They were basically on the same damn tour. They toured that record for just a little over three years. Because right now, like I said, August 94 is three years after the Black Album came out. So they were playing every place that had electricity because everybody wanted to see them. They were one of the biggest bands in the entire world at one point. And as I understand it, I've heard different stories about this, but basically they were like, man, we want to go in and do a new record. We're tired of these songs. Maybe not so much tired of these songs. I'm putting words. When I tell these stories, I put words in people's mouths. But, you know, I can only imagine it's like, let's do a new record. I mean, people are asking for new material. And we're super hot right now, so why not make a new record? But apparently the contra promoters and everybody else involved got together and was like, hey, why don't you guys go out on the road for one more summer? Just do one more summer. And apparently they were like, no. And so they kind of held out. And they, they held out for, you know, some stuff, some fringe benefits. 
And apparently one of the fringe benefits was, okay, we'll go out, but we're gonna, we want to do a package tour. We want to have three total bands, including us, and we're going to pick the bands. And so they're like, yeah, whatever you want, totally. If you can get them, great. So uh, according to, I think it was Lars and James especially, of course, they're the leaders of the band. They handpicked Alice in Chains and Suicidal Tendencies, which at the time were their two favorite bands. And they both had, you know, things to promote and, and things such as that. So they picked Alice in Chains and Suicidal Tendencies. And I remember hearing about this tour initially being like, damn, that's going to be shit hot. That's going to be a great tour. So we got our tickets. Uh, I don't know how long in advance, but I remember having them a while. Uh, went with a friend of mine named Jason Fowler, who uh, uh, sadly he passed away a few years ago. He's no longer with us. Uh, but yeah. You know, we, we went to a few shows together, and this was, I think, one of the two shows we went to together. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, the not-so-much-fun part came, uh, you know, probably a few weeks uh, before the tour started officially, and there was an announcement that Allison Chains would have to cancel on the tour due to, quote-unquote, health reasons, which we all know now, unfortunately, was Lane Staley's heroin addiction that would not go away, that would lead to his untimely demise. And so Allison Chains canceled. So, you know, initially I'm like, oh, great. You know, Suicidal is going to get to play longer or they'll get another cool band in there. And this is where I believe the label stepped in because Metallica label mates Candlebox were put on the bill instead. And the really, 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 really shitty thing about that was Candlebox didn't get put on as the opening band. They got put on as the middle band. Yes, what an absolute atrocity that a rookie band such as Candlebox, with one really bad album, this is all my opinion, but it's my show. Uh, man, I lived through rock radio and that album being around. Couldn't stand that shit. I still can't stand that shit. If you're a Candlebox fan, I'm sorry, not sorry. But, man, once again, Candlebox, get the middle slot, because they're the big, new, shiny thing right now. Uh, over a band that had like what, like half a dozen albums out, had credibility, were great, suicidal tendencies. And it's not like they were a no name underground band. Yeah, they started underground, but they were on a major label at that point, and they had a decent amount of Headbangers Ball play. So, man, I don't care who you are, you do not play over suicidal tendencies if you're in that position. That's just freaking wrong. That's one of the stupidest things that anybody ever did on any metal tour was to do that so suicidal they got like half an hour if that maybe let's say 40 minutes they didn't get a long set let's just say so they stuck as many songs as they could into their set with the allotted time they were given once again which wasn't much got to hear some great songs got to hear send me your money join the army uh, things such as that they were supporting their suicidal for life album at that point they played a handful of songs from that but it just wasn't enough and, you know, they go out there and kill it. And then Candlebox comes out and they do like a fucking hour. They get like a, they get like the same amount of time that Alice in Chains would have got had they been in that position. It's so, once again, it's so freaking stupid. They probably played their whole album because I remember them playing like at least 12 songs. Mind-numbing. And they ran out of songs. They had to do a cover song. They did Jane's Addiction's Mountain Song, which I really liked that song. And it was really boring in their hands. So, man, that was an atrocious set. That's the first really bad set I ever set through. And, yeah, it was so fucking bad. But I gotta tell you, 
we blew out a lot of energy during suicidal set and we just sat on the lawn for you know the next two hours or whatever it was and so by the time metallica came out we had restocked on energy that's for damn sure so you know i gotta say like you know metallica probably the most road weary band ever at this point but they put on a great show. They, they are such pros. They always put on the best show. And you know that they were just like, let's try to have as much fun as possible. Okay, here's the songs we got to play. But basically outside of that, they uh, pretty much played whatever they wanted. Like, they went pretty deep uh, going on to the setlist.fm once again, which I like to do if it's up for the exact show I went to. And a good reference point for this, or at least a decent reference point for this set list, would be to go and look up the Pro Shop version of the Woodstock 94 set that they did, you know, it's up there, so go check it out on YouTube. But it's definitely a slightly different set list because they played a little bit shorter set at Woodstock, and they played a lot longer set on this evening. They did a 20-song set, and there was a lot of elements of the live shit set and stuff like that, but I gotta tell you, they threw in two really obscure songs for them at that point, uh, they played The God That Failed, which I think at that point was the only song from the Black Album they hadn't played live. I could be wrong about that, but I'm almost positive that's the reason that they played it on this tour. So they're like, okay, well, we've played everything else. We'll play The God That Failed. Let's get to the music. I'm going to surprise you with the surprise song for me that they played that night. So yes, we're going to do a twofer here. We are doing a first here on Rock Strikes 10 for the concert chronology. We are going to skip a band that I saw live. I'm not going to play Candlebox. I'm not going to subject you to that. Also, I don't think I have any Candlebox at all. I, I'm most positive I have zero Candlebox, even on comps. I got nothing, and I'm fine with that. So we're going to kick things off with a twofer right here, starting off with probably the absolute best hardcore crossover ever, punk and metal, the great suicidal tendencies. We're going to hear from them, and not the direct audio, but we're going to hear live audio from this tour from Metallica, with that song that I told you about that really surprised everybody that night. So enjoy this first twofer, and I'll see you in a few minutes. Fuck it. 
right. Capping off that concert story from the Metallica Summer Shit Tour right there, 1994. I went to it on August 5th, 1994. That live audio was from June 17th, 1994. That was a soundboard recording from a show they did in Middletown, New York. And I actually got that for free on Metallica.com. They did this thing a few years ago where they advertised that they were giving away a ton of shows on their website just for free. I guess there were shows that weren't like complete or they had flaws in it or the quality wasn't as good. So they just gave them all away on their website. How cool is that, man? I got to say, some people have shit on Metallica over the years for different things and the, the Napster thing and selling out and having a bad record here and there. You know what? In the grand scheme of things, all is forgiven, at least on my end. And I think everybody else should do the same because... Who gives out dozens of live recordings for free on their website? And the quality's not that bad. I mean, you didn't hear too much of a quality drop there. Yeah, it's hard to beat that studio version of Suicidal Tendencies doing no fucking problem, by the way, from the Suicidal for Life record there, 1994. That kicked off the set. And if you're a Metallica fan, you know that one. Disposable Heroes, taken from that exact tour. So that's pretty much how I heard it. Because, you know, they're total pros. It's going to sound the same way almost every night. And there's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah, that was a cool show. Once again, hottest balls in August in Texas, and that's a real term down here. It was one of the only shows I've ever been to at Starplex where they actually brought hoses out and were spraying us on the lawn, and we were loving it. It was more like a rain spray. It wasn't like a direct rioting spray, you know, which would be terrible. But, yeah, they just, you know, doused water on us because it was probably 110 degrees out there, legit. So I remember that being the only show I've ever been on at the lawn at Starplex where they turn the hoses on. I don't think they do that very much, no matter how hot it gets anymore, probably for stupid liability reasons. But there you go. There's my Metallica summer shit story right there. We're going to move on here to the next show that I saw, which was only a couple of months after that. And so the summer of 94 was my transition from junior high to high school. So... That was a pretty big culture shock and just everything else. You know, of course, moving from junior high to high school is a big deal for anybody. And, you know, some of the people that you were friends with in junior high come along and some of them go to the other high school if you live in an area like I do. We didn't all go to the same high school. So there's a certain line in the county where you go one place or you go the other. I actually live nearby my old rival high school. So I live a few blocks away from it, which is the school that my wife went to. We didn't go to the same high school, which wouldn't have mattered anyway because we didn't go at the same time. She's a lot younger than I am. But uh, so, you know, I made a batch of new friends or at least, you know, people you think that are your friends and they usually turn out to not be. And that's high school. Uh, But, you know, it was fun while it lasted. And we all kind of got together. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, that stupid high school bullshit. You know, we would hang out on Friday nights. And we would pretend like we lived in the days to confuse times and we'd go cruising. And we'd always wind up at like Putt-Putt or Mount Tasia thinking we were so cool. And like we were like, you know, going to that cool place that you saw at the at, in Days to Confused. Whether it was the Moon Tower or the, uh, was it the Derby? Not the Derby. But you know what I'm talking about, that place with all the pinball machines and shit. Foosball tables. Yeah, we didn't have a, really a place like that. We had like a Putt-Putt golf <laughs> with a ticket arcade. So, yeah, but we thought we were hot shit. And... I was the fifth wheel in all these double dates, so it was like, you know, you know, a couple of friends of mine, they were both dating each other, and then me. (laughs) 
So yeah, I was the dipshit. I was the guy telling all the jokes. Uh, but yeah, so we all got together and we got Aerosmith tickets because it was the top priority of the fall, man. So yeah, I mean, you know, I talked about going to see Aerosmith on the last show. I saw him at the beginning of the Get a Grip tour. And by this time, I'd already been through, you know, a whole year of junior high, gotten into high school, and Aerosmith was still on the Get a Grip tour. How things don't change sometimes. Speaking of people that are like road dogs, Aerosmith's definitely one of them. So, you know, they were doing a gig, and I bet you could guess where it was. Yes, it was at the Starplex, October 3rd, 1994, and we're all jazzed because, you know, even though, you know, that's the thing, and I maybe I talked about this on the last episode, but even though Aerosmith were old guys at the time, they're on a huge upswing. Their videos were in heavy rotation on MTV. They were played on the radio every five minutes, and they were huge. They were one of the biggest bands in the world, once again playing everywhere where there was electricity. So everybody wanted to go see Aerosmith, whether they saw him the year before that or they just kind of got on the bandwagon. It didn't matter. That place was definitely legit sold out. And the the other funny thing I remember about this, you know, and I have good memories, despite me, you know, making jabs at myself of being the fifth wheel. I had a good time during that time. I really did. You know, thinking that there would be some sort of cool reflection on me and it would be to my benefit at some point with members of the opposite sex but that didn't happen and that's okay i got to go to these shows and you know i still have a few decent stories uh but i the thing i remember the most about this show for sure is the fact that we ran into our school police officer at that show uh, officer goss yeah i still remember his name i haven't thought of, i haven't said that name in decades uh, yeah, Officer Goss was there at the Aerosmith show as, as, you know, not working security. He was there as a citizen. And, you know, that was cool. Like, he kind of, like, got the cool pass for, like, the rest of the three years we were there. So I'm like, hey, Officer Goss isn't all that bad. He went to see Aerosmith. How bad could he be? So, yeah, nice guy. And so I remember that. And, you know, I'm, of course, I'm sure he was like, yeah, you kids don't have any weed on you, do you? And I know I didn't. Uh, I think at least maybe one or two people in our party probably did. But that's okay. I didn't partake. I never do. I never have. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm so freaking cool. Okay, so, but yeah, we we saw Aerosmith, and here's the beginning of the band that followed me around so much for all these years. I, well, I say that, you know, I used to say I was gonna that they were giving me a rash. Uh, Collective Soul was the opener for Aerosmith. So this is gonna be the first of many times I mention Collective Soul in this concert series. I may not play them every time, but, uh, you know, because I'm just a, you know, I'm a, I guess I'm a Greatest Hits fan if I am, and maybe half the Greatest Hits. Uh, but they, they're an okay band, and every time I saw them, they never offended me or anything. I did used to take some jabs at Collective Soul because I always was like, they got three freaking guitarists in their band. You barely need one guitar in that band. One's definitely all you need. We used to goof on them about that, but, you know, they opened this Aerosmith show, and they were fine. So I figured... Since I ran to him so much on this series, I should at least play one Collective Soul song. And I have actually a live recording in my library of an obvious song. You'll know it. You've heard it a billion times. But at least, hey, we're going to play a live version, so it's not going to be the same old boring thing you've heard all the time. And uh, this song kind of had a rebirth with me a few years ago. And uh, for some of you, you may know why. Uh, but I'll play it, and maybe you want to listen to like the very, very end of the show uh, and understand why that this song kind of had a comeback in the last few years. So there you go. I'm really putting it out there. Listen to the whole show. Uh, but until then, from back on October 3rd, 1994, my sophomore year of high school, here's a twofer from the Aerosmith show with Collective Soul opening. Of course, we're going to start off with the opening act, Collective Soul. 
There you go.
There you go. Two live tracks there on that twofer. We started off with Collective Soul and probably their biggest hit, at least as far as I can tell. Uh, it's possible, like some of those latter songs, like that, uh, got that stupid song from Varsity Blues or something. That was probably their biggest hit. I don't freaking know. But I feel like Shine is the most played song they've ever put out. So I played that. That was from Woodstock 94. I had the audio for it, so I figured I'd play that. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's, uh, that song makes me laugh actually now, uh, for some reasons, for reasons you may know if you listen to the entire episode. But yeah, that's a pretty cool version. And to represent Aerosmith, busted out a song from a live performance of a song they actually played that night at the show. I talked about the previous time I saw them, you know, they played, uh, Rattlesnake Shake and they also played Big Ten Inch Record, which was awesome. This is a pretty stellar Aerosmith set list, and I'm not one of those guys that bags on the new material, or quote-unquote new material, like late 80s, early 90s stuff. Oh yeah, that new stuff. Uh, but yeah, I'll go ahead and tell you the set list, because it was great. Uh, Eat the Rich, Toys in the Attic, Fever, Flesh, Seasons of Wither, Let the Music Do the Talking, Crying, Crazy, Last Child, Deuces are Wild, Mama Ken, Stop Messing Around, Fleetwood Mac Cover, Walk On Down, Janie's Got a Gun, Love in an Elevator, Do Looks Like a Lady, Sweet Emotion, Dream On, Living on the Edge, and Walk This Way. It's a pretty epic set list, uh, to be honest. But yeah, Seasons of Wither was the one I took away that night, going, man, I can't believe they played that. I'm so glad they did. Uh, great song off of one of the great Aerosmith albums of all time, Get Your Wings. That audio, actually, I couldn't find any audio of it from that actual tour, which is what I try to do on these shows, I really do. That one actually came all the way from the 2005 release 
of Rockin' the Joint, which is them playing at the Hard Rock at the Joint in Las Vegas. Rest in peace, Joint. Great room, great room. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a cool live album. You should definitely go check it out. They bust out some of the cool stuff like that. Same old song and dance, Rattlesnake Shake. It's a good show. Uh, but yeah, and that was a great show. Uh, but let's move on here to the next show that I saw. We have to go all the way to March 24th, 1995, a couple of weeks after my birthday. What, what birthday would that have been? I guess that would have been my 16th birthday. Right now, Yeah, let's say I was 16, March 24th, 1995. Uh, we are not at the Starplex once again. So we're going over to the kind of the other side of downtown. Going to Reunion Arena in Dallas, Texas. Man, that's an old school iconic arena right there. And I didn't get to see a ton of shows at Reunion Arena, but I always enjoyed being in there. Just had a cool vibe. And, you know, even though it was a basketball arena, home of the Dallas Mavericks and later on the Dallas Stars. Even if you don't live down here in Dallas, if you've never been out to Dallas for a show at Reunion Arena back in the day, chances are you've seen Reunion Arena in some particular media. The Priest Live, the Turbo Tour, that was filmed uh, for the album and the home video at Reunion Arena. And more importantly, as far as overall huge history goes, the Home Sweet Home video by Motley Crue was filmed exclusively at Reunion Arena. You, you'll see when they're doing the big uh, fast motion thing with the people coming into the arena. That's the outside of Reunion Arena right there as well. So that's Reunion Arena for you if you need a reference for it. I was excited about this show. I was really excited about this show. Now, it started off weird. At least uh, the early part of the evening started off pretty weird. I was going to go to the show with my friend Jason Coleman, who and he was actually the first friend I made once I moved out to this area. He doesn't live here anymore, sadly, but I do miss him. He was my first friend here. Uh, so we were going to go to the show, and I was actually excited because we went to the Guns N' Roses Metallica show together, with him and his brother Charles. And we had a good time, so I always liked hanging out with Jason. Can't tell you how many times I slept over at his house. Uh, super fun times. So uh, besides that one time, we had never gone to a show together, so we were going to go see Van Halen, and we were both excited about it. I was super excited about it. It was my first time to see Van Halen. Yes, it was Van Hagar, but I didn't care because I like both things. Of course, I love Dave. I love Dave. I prefer Dave and Van Halen, but at the time... Uh, Van Halen was supporting Balance, which I still love the Balance record. I think it's a great record. Yeah, there's a couple of filler tracks on there, but it's one of their most stellar-sounding productions, and I still like a lot of the songs. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a Balance fan. So they were playing Reunion Arena, and I was definitely going to go. I had to go to this. So I was going to go to the show with Jason, and then I was probably going to stay over at his house that night. It just made sense because we were going to get back late. And I don't even remember who, oh yeah, his brother Charles went with us. He was going to go to the show with us because he was driving us. Uh, so that helped. That that worked out pretty well. So I, you know, actually all of these shows that I'm referring to, just a little get up contrast from the first two episodes, my mom didn't take me to any of these shows. <laughs> so by this point I made a couple of friends and I had a ride. So this worked out really well. So what happened was, I remember I took my bag, I went over to Jason's, and he lived in a cul-de-sac, uh, which is actually just five minutes from where I live now. And we would always go out and play basketball when the sun was out, and we loved playing basketball, which I don't know why I loved it, but I did. It's just good memories also. But he used to kick my ass every time. We'd play one-on-one, -on -one, 
and he'd always win. It didn't matter if I got within a point or whatever. He'd always manage to figure out a way to win. And I think that was the only time I ever beat him. Yeah, I, th I think I only beat him that one time, if that. Maybe I'm just imagining that I beat him once. But the reason I'm telling you the story is because we either played a second game or we were at the end of the game, and he took a really bad fall, and he broke his arm, basically, or he did a lot of damage to his arm. He had to go to the hospital. And, you know, it was weird. It was like this awkward thing because Jason's really hurt, and... You know, I'm really, we're really concerned about him, uh, but we have these tickets for this show. And so it kind of turned into his dad, I think his dad or his mom was like, well, I'm going to take him to the hospital, find somebody to go to the show with you. And that's kind of what it turned into. It's like, well, that stinks and I we feel really bad. So it kind of, you know, we're all in like a down mood and now we got to go to the show. At least, you know, I obviously I still want to see the show, but I was concerned for my friend. Okay, so let's, I've established that. Let's move on. So... We actually, uh, I called my friend Jason Fowler, who I went to that first show with. I talked about the Metallica show. So he wound up going with us. So that was weird. So it was other Jason and his brother and me. And so we all got in the car and went down a Friday night, <laughs> Friday night concert traffic in downtown Dallas. That's always fun. I definitely wasn't driving. Even if I was 16, I wasn't driving to Dallas from the word go. Uh, so we get there and here you go. I kind of set it all up to tell you this. The opening band was Collective Soul. Yes, once again. So two shows in a row, same opening act. So I'm sure some of you have experienced this. If, if you've ever had this happen to you, if you run into the same opening act two shows in a row, let me know. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. And I'll be nice since I'm talking long on this show. And the way I have it set up here, I was not set up to play two Collective Soul songs, so I'm not going to. They were actually better that night. They were already on their second record, I believe, or it was just coming out, that self-titled second album of theirs. So they had newer and better material to play. So they were a lot better that night. I, I don't know why I remember this, but I remember they actually came out, the, their PA song that they came out to was Breed by Nirvana. So I, I don't know why I remember these things, but I just remember that. So, you know, they were fine. They, they went up there and they played their little set. And, uh, you know, getting ready for Van Halen. And they come out there, and I think they played a great set. It was a super fun show by my standards. And like I said, I, I really love the Balance album. I already had probably about a month with it to get used to it. So by the time the show was here, I was ready. Like, I was going to know every song they played that night. And I did. So there's actually some good pro shots from this tour on YouTube. So you should go check them out. Sound quality wasn't that great on anything I found. Or at least I didn't find any isolated songs that I really wanted to play from this tour because I really wanted to play something off the Balance album because I like the album so much. So we are going to go with the studio cut, but this is one you haven't heard so many times. It, actually, I think it was released as a single maybe or like a, a small release as a single to rock radio, but it wasn't anything big. Uh, I remember they played this on the John Stewart show when they were on there, which is a great appearance. They got the whole hour with them. Uh, but yeah, this was kind of a song that really stuck out to me. And even though they played a ton of hits that night, you know, they still weren't playing like all the Roth songs because Hagar didn't like to do that. But you know, they they threw they played I know they played Panama. I'm looking at the set list here. Let's go into it. So Roth songs they played that night. Uh You Really Got Me, if that counts. Which, you know, yeah, it does. Uh Ain't Talking About Love and Panama. So wow, they only played three Roth songs. That was less than I thought it would be when I looked it over. But you know. 
Uh, to me, probably the only disappointment was not playing best of both worlds. For me, if you're going to be Van Hagar and you're not playing best of both worlds, you're doing it wrong. That's like the best Van Hagar song. Uh, but here's a really good one right here. They played it that night. And man, this is just classic Eddie right here. This is one of the great Eddie, you know, guitar rights. Like just the where the song goes, the bridges, everything about it's great. The intro riff is great. I just love this song. So here you go. From the underrated, underappreciated balance record, this is Aftershock.
All right. Yes, that might be the real gem of the entire Van Hagar run right there. That was Aftershock from Balance. Go get that record. Produced by the great Bruce Fairbairn, who produced the Comeback Aerosmith albums. He's a great producer. So, yeah, go go check that record out if you never gave it a shot. Uh, one of the B-sides that was cut off of that record, Crossing Over, that's a pretty good song, too. I'm surprised it didn't make the record. I actually would have put that on instead of putting, like, maybe the third ballad uh, on there. That's just my opinion. Uh, but, yeah, let's move on here. April 22nd, 1995, uh, just a little under a month after that show, so I'm kind of turning into a regular at this point as it concerns concerts. Uh, but this one, also very excited about. I've been a fan of this guy and this band, actually, for exactly 10 years at this point. I became a fan in 1985, and by 1995, I finally got to see for the first time, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Big deal for me. I was all in on Tom Petty at this point. I had the playback box set. I had a good amount of his records. Wildflowers was out, and I loved that record. I loved it from day one. And this was Tom doing a tour for Wildflowers, which the weird thing was, it was conceived and, you know, quote-unquote performed as a Tom Petty solo album. But much like Full Moon Fever, pretty much all the Heartbreakers were on there. Uh, and this is kind of what led to Stan Lynch leaving the band, and then they got Steve Ferroni in later on, which that wasn't the original idea, even though Steve Ferroni played on the album for the most part. He was mostly known as a session guy, uh, so they offered him the gig after Dave Grohl turned it down, apparently. But Steve's a great choice, and he remained a heartbreaker till the very end, and we love Steve Ferroni. Uh, he still does a, a show on Tom Petty Radio called The New Guy Show. You should check it out. It's good. Uh, but yeah, I got to see the Wildflower Store, so I can brag about that. Uh, there, actually, he, I mean, it's a great set list. I'm looking over it right now, a 20-song set. I'll go over it here. Because uh, to me, like, two of my personal favorite songs off of Full Moon Fever open and close the show. So here, here's the set list. Love is a Long Road, You Don't Know How It Feels, Listen to Her Heart, I Won't Back Down, Free Fallen, You Wreck Me, Diamond Head, which is a Ventures cover, Mary Jane's Last Dance, Learning to Fly, Time to Move On, Girl on LSD, which is an outtake from Wildflowers, which still hasn't been released officially. It's supposed to be on the long-delayed Wildflowers box set that hasn't come out yet. Uh, then You're So Bad, It's Good to Be King, Driving Down to Georgia, Refugee, Running Down a Dream, and then the encore was Honeybee, American Girl, and All Right for Now. So, yeah, nice closer there, because All Right for Now is this like, beautiful like lullaby kind of thing, and that's kind of like winds down the show. And when he's like, thank you for coming out, and everybody's like, yeah, you know. So it was it was just a well-paced show, and it's one of the best shows I've ever seen. And at the time, like the like the Ventures cover, it kind of almost served as like, hey, go get something to eat, go to the bathroom, because they kind of jammed on it for like five minutes, it seemed. And they got back to the songs, and it's an instrumental on top of that. Uh, and the other one I think that didn't get very well appreciated uh, was the song Driving Down to Georgia, which... You know, we none of us, I don't think anybody in the crowd was that familiar with it. But, you know, they played it really well. And it's one of those things where when I went back and listened to it and how they played it on that tour, I was like, man, it's a good song. It just it kind of deserved better. But at the same time, that's what happens when you bust out an obscure song. I mean, you know, I appreciate and respect Tom for playing the shows that he wants to play. Because he could go out there and play hits for three hours, but he doesn't choose to do that. Uh, but, yeah, like, listening back to this song years later, I, like, appreciate it a lot more. So I figured, hey, 
that should be the one we represent with this set. But they did have an opening act, and I'll talk about it for just a little bit here. I don't remember too much about them. There's not much to say. Uh, they're a pretty heralded act critically and, you know, hipsterish. But, you know, they weren't that bad. They were pleasant. Once again, not offensive. Uh, but they have this one really good song that I know of theirs. So I figured, hell, let's just play it here. How many times am I going to get a chance to play it? So let's just play it here. So the opening band, at least on the show that I saw, were the Jayhawks. Uh, so we're going to do a really cool twofer right here. We're going to play my favorite song by the Jayhawks. And we're going to play a little Tom Petty. We're going to do that Driving Down to Georgia song, a live version from that actual tour. So here you go. Hope you enjoy this twofer, and I'll talk to you in a little bit.
Okay, there was a twofer right there to represent the Dogs with Wings tour. That's what it was officially called right there. That's a nod to a lyric from the It's Good to Be King song. And we started off there with the opening act at that Tom Petty show, the Jayhawks, with their song Blue. That's the opening track from their album from that same year of 1995, an album called Tomorrow the Greengrass. And I really love that song Blue. There's actually a really killer cover version of that that I actually prefer by The Thorns which was Matthew Sweet, Pete Droge, and Sean Mullins. Them doing that song in three-part harmony pretty much kills, so go look up the Thorns version in blue as well if you like that track. It is better, but uh, that's a good version too, the original. like it. It's good enough for me to play on the show. And Tom Petty with Driving Down the Georgia. And I had to look this up because I consider myself a pretty big Tom Petty fan. I own every record, pretty much have them all on vinyl. I've got, I think, all the DVDs. I'm a fan, but I was like... I don't know what album this song is off of. It wasn't listed as a cover on the set list site, so I went ahead and Googled it. And apparently it is a Tom Petty original. It's not a cover, but it just never appeared uh, as a studio track on any Tom Petty record. So maybe at some point, once the vaults finally get busted wide open here, we'll uh, maybe get a studio version of that. But for right now, there's no official release for it in a studio capacity. But it is on the live anthology box set, which is where I got that audio from. And actually, that wasn't from the Wildflowers tour. I was a little mistaken. It was from 1993. So the tour before that, or maybe a birthday show he played, because it's from Gainesville, Georgia. So they don't have to be on tour to play Gainesville. Uh, But that could have been from the End of the Great Wide Open tour, for all I know. But there you go. Hope you enjoyed that. It's something a little different, something you don't hear every day for sure. Forwarding slightly ahead to one of the best days of my entire life, July 2nd, 1995. It was the day that Kiss came to town, second time I got to see Kiss. But this is probably, of all the tours they've ever done, uh, it's definitely up in the top three of tours where If you are a fan and you miss this, you are regretting it for the rest of your life. And this was the KISS convention tour, of course, convention with a K. And this is KISS, like, basically, and from what I understand, just reading books about him, multiple books over the years and things like that, uh, KISS got to the point where, you know, they weren't doing great concert business as far as, like, playing in arenas and stuff like that. It's so weird how uh, some of their most heralded records by fans, such as Creatures of the Night and Revenge, did terrible business on tour. Uh, You know, in retrospect, I guess people love the albums, but, you know, the tours didn't do so well. And the thing that really stinks is apparently on the Revenge tour, they shut the tour down early. They finished up the first leg, and they were supposed to start the second leg in Dallas, apparently. I think they were going to play the Fair Park Arena, which is where I saw Skid Row and Pantera. And the fact that I missed out on a revenge show from happening just breaks my heart to this day. Uh, but it was made up for in a little bit of a way by the KISS convention to where I will say, I remember this was the first year I ever quote-unquote surfed the internet uh, reading about this tour happening on like the KISS otaku pages and, and KISS Asylum, if you remember that site. Uh, that's where all the Julian Gill articles used to appear at. So I remember all those sites and reading that, wow, there's going to be a KISS convention in Dallas on July 2nd. I have to be there. I remember reading early on, tickets are going to be $100. And I was like, oh, oh, man. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I am 16 years old and I'm living at home. And 
I have a job, you know, like a part-time job, so I, I can afford $100. But I am so weird sometimes. I'm not the best planner in the world. I never have been. I'm okay, but I tend to kind of go into certain things with not a great plan, let's just say. So glad that Nola's a great planner, and I've leaned on her a lot over the years. Much to the point where I don't know where I do without her most of the time. Uh, but so here's here's how I went into going to the KISS convention. Here's how I wound up there. So there was a guy that I was friends with, a lot older guy, and we became friends because of KISS. I don't even know where I met this guy. His name was Kenny. And I think I actually met him through some friends of mine that I had gone to junior high with that I stayed friends with. But he was like definitely an older guy, and he hung out with he had older friends. And I actually went to a party or two of his, and I definitely shouldn't have been there. Man, I was way too young to be at some of those parties, let me tell you. It's weird. I talked about how I wasn't popular, and I wasn't. But I fly on the wall at a couple of really crazy adult parties, uh, and like I wasn't even there. It was really weird. But that all being said, I had a few conversations with Kenny, and I was like, Hey, Kenny, are you going to go to the KISS convention? We should go to that. We're both big fans. We should definitely go to this. And he was like, Yeah, I'm going to go. And so he... He actually bought his tickets the right way. He bought them through the mail, like Gene was doing a lot of the times. You could buy the Kistory book and the Kiss Convention tickets via the mail. So he did it the right way. Old Joey over here was having Kenny drive him up to the thing and spend all day out there. And with no ride home and no plan, if I didn't get in, like, I mean, I just had to get in because I would be stranded at the DFW Marriott all day with no real way to get home. I mean, I suppose I could have called my mom on a payphone, but I wasn't going to do that because I was going to this. So, matter of fact, I had taken a part-time job, like I had said. I was working at Sonic. That was my first part-time job ever. And I saved up enough money. I worked there through the spring and early summer. I saved up enough money to buy an Ibanez Iceman guitar, the 95 reissues that Ibanez was putting out. So I had to get a Paul Stanley Iceman guitar. Of course I did. I was the biggest Kiss fan in the world. I had to have this guitar. Plus, I also play guitar. That helps. Um, it kind of weirds me out when people collect guitars they can't play and wouldn't play them. I don't get that. But anyway, moving on. So I've got my Iceman. I've got a case for it, so I brought it with me. I'm like, Paul Stanley's going to sign my guitar. They advertised that once all the festivities are done for the night, they're going to hang out and sign autographs until the last person is done for. And the last person is heading home. They will close the doors then once everybody gets their shit signed. It's going to be the greatest kiss day ever. So once again, just to reiterate, I'm heading out to the DFW Marriott uh, over by the airport with no ticket. <laughs> and there are $100 tickets. I actually think I did bring $100 with me. And the greatest thing that could possibly happen to me happened. Uh, Kenny's in line, and I'm not in line because I don't have a ticket. I'm kind of hanging out looking sad. So that's the plan. Look sad. Somebody is either going to let me in for free <laughs> or they're going to sell me their ticket. And apparently what had happened was there was a New Orleans stop and a Houston stop on this convention tour. And, you know... For reasons that I don't know, I, I can't imagine for lack of interest, because the thing about the KISS convention tour is, you know, I talked about how they weren't doing good concert business, but they booked themselves in like thousand person capacity rooms and hotels. 
It's a great way to market to your hardcore fan base. Embracing your hardcore fan base, super smart thing to do. So I can't imagine any of those major cities, they, they couldn't draw a thousand people to a, a ballroom, for, to a hotel for this, as great as this was advertised. So for some reason, they say for logistic reasons, Houston and New Orleans were canceled. And if you, I, you know, I'm assuming refunds were offered, but maybe not. I can't, I've heard from some people that refunds were not offered. They basically just told them, look, it's gonna, your tickets will be honored if you go to the Dallas thing. Uh, but if you, but that's the only way you could go. So I, I don't know what the true story is, but that's just the two different things I've heard. But lucky for me, some people didn't make the trip. So there's a few people that showed up like kind of like last minute that either had plans to go with extra people and those people couldn't go because of other kind of commitments or they just couldn't leave town or it was too expensive for them. But either way, somebody came out to me and was like, hey, I've got an extra ticket. And I was like, I'll give you $50 for it. And the guy was like, okay. <laughs> so I got to go to the KISS convention for $50. I didn't have the peace of mind going in that everybody else did. But hey, it didn't matter. I was young and I was not going to be denied. Went to this thing. It was pretty great. I didn't even like wind up hanging out with Kenny all day. It was weird. We kind of just did our own thing. Went to the displays that we wanted to go to. We'd see each other here and there and just kind of, hey, you know. But uh, we made our way in and hung out during, you know, all the festivities. But getting to see all those cool display cases and the mannequins and the costumes and the drum sets and, and what have you. Stuff in plaques, framed lyric sheets. And it was just so cool. And that was just the build up to it. And then uh, it starts off, there's a guitar clinic by Bruce Kulick and a drum clinic by Eric Singer. They both did their own Q&As, and they both played a little bit and jammed to dat machines and stuff like that. And there was a Kiss tribute band. I think ours was called Alive. That sounds right. I think they said they were Canadian. Uh, they were pretty good. You know, not bad. You know, I was like, hey, I'm getting to see a Kiss act in makeup. I hadn't seen that before. So that was fun. So, And I realize I'm going long on this story, but hey, it's one of the great days of my life. So I, I didn't want to skip details here. And so Kiss come out, and... You know, it started off like they're not even going to play. They're going to come out first and do a Q&A. And the Q&A went on, you know, probably for about 45 minutes to an hour or something like that. And, you know, it's a lot of people trying to get up on stage and all that kind of stuff. And the, this is when I knew that it's very possible that Gene Simmons might be full of crap, talking about, like, how much, you know, strange he was pulling on the road and how he was a wild man like that. I have a theory that Gene actually stayed pretty decently loyal to Shannon Tweed from the moment they met. Not because it's like this great sappy love story, but also AIDS, you know, things like that. I mean, who knows? I, that's just my theory, but I think that could have been the case because this woman literally jumped up on stage. It's not like she was not attractive. She literally sat down in Gene's lap and tried to make out with him on stage. And the Gene we all know, character-wise, would be like all for this, but... This Gene was kind of pushing her away and would kind of put his hand between their lips and, uh, you know, kind of like, oh, thank you very much. It's time to go now. And security would holler off and whatever. So I remember that happening. And, uh, you know, as far as like the Q&A goes, they, there was an interesting revelation that uh, got a big gasp in the room. And, you know, this has been talked about in books now. But at the time, I hadn't seen this in any magazine article or anything. Somebody, of course, brought up Vinnie Vincent. And, the, you know, Paul went into a lot of detail about how problematic he was and everything. And 
He said, to this day, uh, Vinnie Vincent has never signed a legal contract involving Kiss. And the place just gasped, like, really? Oh, my God. And, you know, of course, then uh, Paul comes in with, e even if he signs it today, we're still not going to let him in. So I, everybody got a laugh out of that. Uh, Kenny brought a handheld camcorder and recorded everything until his battery died, like two-thirds of the way through the acoustic set. But I know he got pretty much all the Q&A. I think I have a VHS copy of the show somewhere. I'm almost positive that I still have that. Uh, there's actual footage from the entire acoustic performance on YouTube from the DFW Marriott. So I recommend you go look that up, especially if you're a big KISS fan. The footage is pretty damn good. And the other reason I implore you to go look that up on YouTube is because the set list is great. As you know, if you know about the KISS convention tours, all request acoustic. Of course, they work some songs up because... They knew with the possibility that people would request these particular songs or they would just kind of shoehorn them in. And uh, to great effect, uh, the fact that they went real deep and, and real hard into the catalog uh, was very well appreciated. And once again, catering to your hardcore fan base. Of course, they still closed out the night with Rock and Roll Night, but how could you not? So my whole plan was, and no one knew about this really in advance, at least not that I remember it being advertised that Kiss Karaoke was going to be a thing, but... Uh, Paul at one point got up on the mic and said, or Gene, and said, we've got guys hanging out with microphones. If you see them and you know the words, get their attention. And right around that time is when they, it was the fifth song, and they went into Going Blind. And Going Blind at that time was my favorite Kiss song. It's still one of my favorite Kiss songs. Top five for sure. Top three. And I was like, I got to get on the mic for Going Blind. That's in my key. I can sing it. No problem. So... This was really interesting. And I was like, Kenny, watch my guitar. It's in a case. Just sit on the case. That's it. Done. Bam. So I was like, Kenny, watch my guitar, but also keep an eye on me. Like, if you see me and you see that someone's about to hand me a mic, please put the camera on me. Because if I don't have actual evidence of me singing with Kiss, then, you know, it didn't happen, right? That's what they say nowadays. So I went over there and... There were two guys mainly that were passing around mics. One guy was this guy Spiro, who was like Gene Simmons' stunt double, basically. You've seen him. He was in uh, Cold Gin as Gene. And another guy named Tommy Thayer was also passing around mics. Tommy was preoccupied with uh, a group of guys that were in Kiss Dynasty costumes. And actually, like, the guy that sang the second verse of Going Blind was the guy dressed up like Paul Stanley. And at the time that he was doing that, I was actually like, maybe I knew his name, but I like waved at him, like got his attention and I locked eyes with Tommy Thayer and love occurred. No, I'm just kidding. And, <laughs> and I was like, like pointing to me, like pick me. I know the words. Like I was like mouthing, like going blind this song. Like, and he goes, and he kind of gives me the one minute thing. So as soon as that, uh, that Paul Stanley guy finished the second verse of going blind, and they go into the guitar solo. All of a sudden, Tommy Thayer starts walking towards me with a microphone. And he kind of says something to me like, hey, you know, we're going to come in. You, you, obviously, you said you know the words, right? Like, yeah, yeah, this is my favorite Kiss song. I was like, great. Have fun. Uh, here's the microphone. I grab the mic. I put it in both hands. And I squeeze it really hard. And for the last verse and chorus of Going Blind, Kiss is performing. Paul and Gene are doing vocals also. But I am singing going blind with them. And it's one of the great moments. That's one of those things where, you know, hopefully I make it to like 85 and I'm not in too much pain. And, you know, I know I'm probably going to go at some point here. And this is one of the things I flash back on.
uh, I got to sing with Kiss. Not on stage with them, but I had the mic in my hand. They were looking at me. They were singing. We were locked in. Simpatico. It happened. And uh, I have the proof here on VHS in my house somewhere, which I can't believe I haven't digitized that yet on DVD, but I'm going to. You don't see it on the YouTube clip because whoever, you know, was filming it was obviously just filming the band and not these yo-yos that were singing. Uh, but yeah, I told you that whole 20-minute story to tell you that, yes, I did sing with Kiss. I, I don't know how many times I've mentioned that on the show. I probably have a couple of times, but it's one of my favorite things ever. I got to sing on Going Blind with Kiss. I don't have good audio of that actual performance, but I will tell you, trust me, if you queue up the Dallas Marriott Kiss Convention Tour from July 2nd, 1995, and you queue it up to the guitar solo and Going Blind, I am definitely singing on there, and I'll tell you how I know for sure that that is me and how you'll know it's me, because between some of the lines, I woo... And at the very end, I'm so excited that this happened, I actually did a little bit of like a howl, like a bark at the moon kind of, ow! That is me. <laughs> so you can clearly hear it in the YouTube footage. So yeah, there you go. The fact that one of the, my few times on an actual mic in front of a thousand people, the, the only time I, was, I had a mic on me in front of a thousand people, was backing up Kiss for one of the great minutes ever. So there you go. In uh, celebration of that, and of course go to the Unplugged album, which is uh, what, which was the fallout from the convention tour. And of course, we got to do it. Here's Going Blind.
Okay, there you go. One of my favorite songs of all time. And every time I hear, especially that unplugged performance, it makes me think of that moment that I spent 20 minutes telling you about. Hopefully you didn't notice it was 20 minutes, but there you go. Going Blind from MTV Unplugged. Greatness. What else can I say? Let's move on to the next show here. Uh, It took me a long time to get to my next show. It was uh, a whole, like, six months later almost. January 4th, 1996. Once again at Reunion Arena. The iconic, not with us anymore, Reunion Arena. It's a parking lot now at this point, or an overpass, or something like that. It's not there anymore, sadly. It's where the Stars won the Cup. It's so sad. Okay, but anyway, this was going to be the first time, you know, a lot of these are firsts, but it, it was a big one because I didn't think I'd get a chance to see it. Because here's the deal. Like, when we're young, we're pretty naive. We believe everything we read for the most part. And if someone says that that's how it is, that's how it is. Okay. Yeah, there you go. What's up, Pete? So, didn't think I was going to get to see this guy live. And I believed it when he said that he was retiring. But thankfully, after 1992 or so, Ozzy Osbourne did not retire. He got pretty bored after a couple of years and decided he was going to do a new record and go on tour once again for the Retirement Sucks Tour. And so that made me happy. I've never been so happy for somebody to break their retirement, I think. Got to see the Ozman. And this is very significant for me. This was the first ever concert that I attended with my lifelong best friend, my hetero life mate, of course, the C of CNJ Radio, Chris. I got to go. I should be introducing him with that kind of an intro, but he's, he's not here. He's at work right now. Uh, but this was the first concert I got to go with Chris. And the added bonus was we went with his parents. And his parents are super cool people. They're big rock fans. They grew up in the 60s and 70s. So they got to go see Black Sabbath, like on their first tours and stuff like that. And they saw Kiss and Alice Cooper and all that stuff. So we, you know, being the age that we were, I kind of feel like we, I think we probably definitely got them back into going to shows, uh, at least, you know, for a little bit here. Uh, But yeah, it it didn't take too much arm twisting to get them to go see Ozzy. So we got like lower balcony and, you know, just real pumped up. And I'm not familiar with the two opening bands going into this. And even as a Metal Edge reader, I'd heard these names, but I wasn't super familiar with them. Maybe I had seen them both a couple of times in Headbangers Ball or something like that, or Super Rock or whatever it was at the time, right before the ball shut down. But I was just like, oh, okay, you know, sure it'll be fine. But there were two opening acts in the way of me seeing Ozzy, and that's kind of how I looked at it. And... The first band that came out was a band called Life of Agony, a band from New York, and I had heard about them. They had a lot of buzz going in, and, you know, I just, like I said, remember seeing multiple write-ups of Metal Edge and things such as that. So I was intrigued to see them. Uh, and, you know, when I saw them, I wasn't bored by them. I thought they were all right. They put on a pretty good set. They didn't blow me away, but I thought they were pretty damn good. So, uh, you know, I was actually talking with Pete about this, the great Pete LaRussa from the I Am Vinyl podcast here on cnjradio.com. We were talking a little Life of Agony as I was about to do this show. You know, just talking with him this morning about it. Had a great conversation. And he was telling me about how he used to go see Life of Agony back in their club days and stuff like that. And that sounds like a good time. And uh, I do appreciate Pete actually hooked me up with the track you're going to hear later on. Uh, so, yeah, they were they were good. I liked them. Not too high of an inflection. Uh, but the second band on that night uh, was a band called Corn, And I am not a Corn fan, like, at all. Not even, like, one of those guys, like... And I appreciate Pete's honesty. Pete said he liked the first two Corn albums, and, and that's cool. Like I said, I give them points for originality. Uh, you know, I kind of see them in the Deftones. It's like there were two bands 
that regardless of what you think about them, they're original enough to where they kind of paved their own genre. They kind of made their own genre because nobody was really doing those kind of acts. So I got to hand it to them for doing that. And uh, I definitely am more of a Deftones guy for sure, like by a mile. I, I actually really like the Deftones a lot. Uh, but yeah, I had to do with Corn, And not that Jonathan Davis did not put on a show, uh, which is interesting because he's flailing around, you know, like a crazy guy. And as Alice Cooper used to say, I don't know how he doesn't lose 40 pounds a show because he's wearing that uh, sweat outfit like the like the like the mobsters wear, you know, like the what do you call them? The windbreakers. And, uh, you know, he's just going crazy and stuff like that. And all the other guys have their guitars like slung down below their knees and stuff like that. So it's an interesting get up contrast. So that went on for a while. <laughs> and here's the thing, man, like, you know, it's funny because the crowd wasn't into him either, really. I didn't really hear a great reaction. Matter of fact, when I went to the bathroom after their set or during their set, there were people making fun of him in the bathroom and stuff like that. So I'm like, I'm sure those people that were making fun of him were the ones that were buying their records like a year or two later. But, you know, that all being said. So, you know, two opening bands. One was pretty good. One I didn't like at all. But now we were finally going to get to see Ozzy. And the other cool thing is, like, at this point, like, I think this might be the first tour that Ozzy did the cool video open where they put him in a bunch of different pop culture things and they Forrest Gump him in all these, you know, moments. And they actually did a Forrest Gump joke at the top of the whole thing, so that, that made sense. Uh, but yeah, it was super fun. So they really pumped us up. And by the time Ozzy comes out, it's just like, yeah. I mean, he opens up with fucking Paranoid, slamming into I Don't Know, then Flying High Again, then Goodbye to Romance, you know, like those first four songs, just right there, it's like, bam. You know, first two solo albums plus Paranoid. Uh, so it was just killer. And the band, oh my God. One of his more underappreciated, underrated lineups, however you want to call it, had the great Joe Holmes on lead guitar, which is kind of the lost Ozzy guitar player, almost more so than Brad Gillis is. Joe was with Ozzy for a long time, did a handful of tours with him, and... You know, the fact that he never got his due on a record, like he never got to play on an Ozzy record. He toured the Osmosis record, but Zach Wilde plays on the record. So it's just unfortunate. And Joe Holmes is an amazing, amazing shredding guitar player. Definitely a student of Randy Rhodes. It, it almost seemed like he could play those Randy Rhodes songs with his eyes closed. He was really good. And he nailed those Randy Rhodes solos, like note for note. You can actually find good footage of pro shot shows of the Osmosis tour or Retirement Sucks Tour, I should say. So go look it up. And I said I wasn't going to talk too long because I told a long kiss story. But okay, I'll get I'll get to the action here. Uh, yeah, Joel Holmes, Geezer Butler on bass. So we have a little Sabbath connection here. Plus the late, great Randy Castillo on drums. Randy was one of the ultimate powerhouses in hard rock and heavy metal. So getting to see him play drums is a real treat. Thankfully, it wouldn't be the last time I would see him. More on that later. But yeah, my first Ozzy show was great. Uh, interestingly enough, he was, you know, he just had the Osmosis record out, and it been out a few months now, and the big song on the radio is Perry Mason, which is a weird song. I mean, musically, it's great. Man, it's uh, it's an obvious OJ song, but yeah, it's just a weird song, you know, it's, it's a play on the Perry Mason theme song and TV show. Uh, so I guess Ozzy wasn't a big fan of the song either, because he didn't even play it that night. The one new song he played off of Osmosis, really good tune here, so I figured, hell, let's just play that. We're going to get into a twofer to represent this show for the last set of the night right here. And I am not going to play corn. I'm going to do the same thing. No candle box, no corn. Sorry, not sorry. It's my show. Uh, we're going to kick off this two-parter here with Life of Agony. And then we'll get into 
the one new song that Ozzy played that night, and I just want you, here's a surprise cover that I heard that night from Life of Agony. Check it out. Yeah. 
All right, Ozzy, closing out the show here. The last twofer of the night. Man, my voice is getting shot right here, and rightfully so. But we kicked off that set with Life of Agony's cover of Simple Minds' Don't You Forget About Me, which was played that night. You can also find it on their debut full-length, Ugly. Thanks again, Pete, for that hookup right there. And we closed off the set with I Just Want You from Osmosis. Line up on that song, Ozzy, Zach Wilde, Geezer Butler, and Dean Castronova, actually, who wound up playing for Journey later on. Uh, weird lineup right there. but And so two of those four people played at that show, and those two were from Black Sabbath. So that's fun stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I know I've talked long on this episode, but, you know, that's what happens when you go back in time. You kind of tend to stay a while. Hopefully I didn't cause too much of a paradox right here. But if you're still listening and you actually do listen to the whole show, and I mean that, the whole outro and the whole thing, you are a friend of mine. Thank you so very much. Okay, we're going to send it over to my better half, Nola, the best outro song in the business, and an answer to the joke from earlier. Take it away, Nola. We would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. We are on Twitter at RockStrikes10, and the direct email is RockStrikes10 at gmail.com. When you search for us, the number 10 is always spelled out. If you would like to support our show financially, we do have Rock Strikes 10 shirts for sale. For $20, we will ship you out a high-quality, soft-as-heck, next-level branded shirt and a button. Send us an email or direct message us for more details or to order. U.S. or APO boxes only. For now. Please help us spread the word about this show and all of our other quality shows by listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. Our official website is cnjradio.com. You can visit this site for all of the episodes of Rock Strikes 10 going back all the way to episode number one. While you're on cnjradio.com, please check out our other quality shows, including The Wrestling Health Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other, The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions, hosted by Randy Brown, a true alternative, The Last Theater, starring Chris, where cinema's trash is treated like treasure, Talking Rock, with Joey and the great Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and the I Am Vinyl podcast with Pete LaRussa and occasionally Joey. Last but not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete LaRussa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebook.com slash spacebeardband to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent you. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun. Oh yeah, and one last thing. Paul Stanley did sign my Iceman guitar. The end. Good night. <laughs>